1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we have worked over the past couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians, I know we haven't really gotten very far. We've got well to the second word in two weeks. So we're going to be done with 1 Corinthians in 2050. Okay, 2050. Uh, Not 15, 50. Today we're going to focus on two. Paul called two. We're going to focus on that word today. No, we're not. But we are going to focus on a word today, and we're just going to have to do it. I mean, this is the introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians, and I think that the things that we have talked about as far as the introduction to the book of Corinth, understanding the climate of the city being a pretty debaucherous place, I remember back when I was growing up, back in elementary, junior, high school, and high school, where I grew up in my Baptist church, I remember hearing different pastors talk about Corinth and and talk about how debase of a city it is, you know, and it's one of those things that, that we would liken it unto Las Vegas, you know, what stays in Vegas, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, what happens in Corinth in Greece stays in Corinth. And it was a really, really debaucherous place. And they began to explain some of the reasons why it was so bad back in that day. And I remember back in that day going, man, that was a really, really, really bad place. And it would be a hard thing to be a Christian in that day. It would have been a hard... it would be a hard thing to be a Christian in the city of Corinth that Paul had written this letter uh, to. And this, you remember, this is actually, I know it says 1 Corinthians, this is Paul's first letter, but actually, you remember, this is actually Paul's second letter. There's another letter we don't know, we can't find. Uh, it's never been uh, discovered. So this is 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians, but it wouldn't make sense to put 2 Corinthians and not have a 1 Corinthians. So that's why they do 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, be that as it may. The, the point is, looking back at that time and thinking about this letter that Paul wrote and, and thinking about how hard of a time, uh, just how debaucherous it was, how, how rooted in evil and just sin was running rampant and it was just accepted and tolerated not just amongst the people that lived in Corinth but even amongst the church the church was incorporating it into itself and began to think hey we're doing God a favor we're actually blessing God by accepting this sinful behavior into the church we're tolerant of it and we're accepting of it even though what we're doing and what, or what they're doing and what we're doing is actually contrary to the word of God. We are all accepting. We are all trying to just receive you know, uh, this, these people in because we want everybody to feel welcome because that is the most important thing in church is to make everybody feel welcome. Well, if you know anything about Jesus, Jesus was not there to make everybody feel welcome. In fact, there was many times that Jesus said some very, very hard things where thousands of people walked away from what it was that he said. They said, man, that's crazy what you're saying. I'm not down with that. As long as you're feeding me something, I'll stick around. But when you start talking like that, I'm out. It happened so hard one time where Jesus talked about, hey, you know, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And Jesus was not talking about physically everybody coming up with steak knives and a fork and taking, you know, a chunk out of his, you know, uh, you know, out of his, you know, rib part or, you know, rump of Jesus, you know, whatever. You know, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about coming up and carving me up to eat my, eat my my flesh and bones 
I don't know what he was talking about. There was something spiritual that he was saying, but because people were so superficial and they only wanted what they wanted God to give them. They were only interested in what was coming to them. They didn't really care about what God wanted in their life. They only wanted what God could give them. And if if ever there was a time where God would say, hey, I want you to really think about what what I just said here. Well, that's too much trouble for me. And so over 5,000 people left. (laughs) Can you imagine? How many churches today that have 5,000 people? And by the way, it wasn't just maybe 5,000 people. There was estimations that there was over 15 to 20,000, even up to 30,000 people that actually Jesus had out there at that time that he said those things and they all took off and left. Now, I don't see mega churches today saying things where the whole congregation gets up and walks out except for the people that are the elders (laughs) and the deacons. And there's only a few of them left. But that's exactly what happened with Jesus. They all got up and they left. Jesus was not teaching a church growth seminar, obviously. He lost a lot of people because he said some hard things. He wasn't tolerant of sin. He wasn't accepting of sin. He he loved the sinner, but he always corrected the sinner. You remember the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8. You remember the story. You remember how she was brought before Jesus from the elders of the city. You know, the religious Jews, they came in and they threw this woman down and Jesus present. She said, hey, she was caught in the act of adultery. I always have found it uh, interesting and kind of comical that these religious men who were doing the, you know, the service of the Lord got the woman... But there was no man present. You ever notice that there was no man there? They didn't point out the man. It was probably one of the guys. They probably set this guy up to do it. Hey, well, they were into that kind of thing. Hey, Judas, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver if you'll betray Jesus. Go grab another guy. Hey, man, we'll pay you, you know, a few pieces of silver to go and sleep with that girl. I know it's going to defile you some, but you know what? Here's the thing. We need to catch somebody in the act. But we promise we won't get you, okay? You can go on your way, but we'll just bring her because we really need to get rid of Jesus because if we don't get rid of Jesus, our positions are going to be taken away from us. He's exposing us for who we are and we don't want to be exposed. And so the man wasn't there, but they throw this woman down before Jesus and said, Jesus, Moses said that we're supposed to stone such a person. And you remember Jesus, he reached down and he started doodling in the ground with his finger. And they said, what do you say we should do? Come on. They knew that they had Jesus stuck in a pickle. And Jesus stopped doodling in the ground. He got up and he said, hey, um, you know what? It is lawful to do it. So the person who has no sin... And what's interesting, if you go back and look at the context of that passage, Jesus says, whoever has not committed the same sin, he even, he even upped the ante a little bit, he who is without the same sin, let him be the one that casts the first stone. And, and so here's the thing, he goes back down and he draws on the ground, he starts doodling on the ground. Now we are not made aware in scripture of what he was writing on the ground. 
But knowing the group that brought this girl, I'm sure that they were very pious. I'm sure that they were very religious and very high and mighty. And they were saying, I've never done that. And I'm just wondering if the things that Jesus was writing on the ground was each and every one of their names and who it was that they did that with. How could you know? Uh, Hello, God. (laughs) Saw it. Jesus, I believe, was God in human flesh. Could you get something by Jesus? No, you can't. Can you hold something? I mean, we have this this idea that, man, if I just keep this quiet, nobody knows about it, and I don't confess it before the Lord. He won't know about it, and I won't know about it. People won't know about it, so I'm just going to keep this bottled up inside this dark little closet in my heart. Nobody knows this secret thing that is going on in my life. I remember hearing one time, uh, uh, he didn't come up with the phrase, but I, I give him credit for it because he rocked me when he said it. His name was David Hawking, and he has this booming voice, deep booming voice. And he always would tell us, preach to the back row. You know, that's kind of what I say to the you know, girls when they get in here and they start singing. You know, when they first start singing, they're like, they're singing way back here. I did. Every one of us, we sing so far away from the microphone because we're afraid of the microphone. I'm like, eat the microphone and sing to the people in the back row and let Grant take care of it, you know? And Bert. Well, Bert and I, we can't hear, so you guys are in trouble, but speak to the back row. That's who I heard that from. But here he says, his name is David Hawking, he said, that deepest, darkest sin that you have in your closet, in your heart, your mind, that thing that you think that nobody knows about, that you've kept hidden, and it's so insulated, no one will ever find out. You think you've gotten away. You think that you've hidden it well. You've packaged it up. You've gotten it in there. And it's nice and tight in a back corner where nobody will ever find it. He said, can I just tell you something? It's open scandal in heaven. It's being preached from the rooftops in heaven. Your deepest, darkest sin is open scandal in heaven. It's known. The idea is... If that's the case, then get right with the Lord. Don't have those little dark closets in our life. And I I have to believe that that's what these religious Jews who brought this woman to Jesus had those little deep, dark things in their life. But on the outside, Jesus, he talked to these guys. He says, you guys look really, really clean on the outside, didn't he? You remember what else he said? But you're filled with dead men's bones. You've washed the outside of the sepulcher. You washed wash the outside of the casket and it's really bright and white. And by the way, if you ever go to Italy, you look at the Mount of Olives, it's covered with coffins. If you look at the Mount of Olives from space and you see it and you're going to go, wow, look at how bright white that mountain is. That's weird. Why is it so bright and white? It's because all of the coffins are above the ground and they're all bleached white. It just covers the whole hill. And, and so, so you have that, and, and Jesus says, you guys are like sepulchers. On the outside, you look very clean, but on the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. It's that little dark cavernous closet that you have in your, in your life that you think you're getting away with. Well, let me tell you this. He who is without sin, let him be the one that casts the, casts the first stone. I'm sure that, that the youngest is going, hey man, because young is always the most brash and most bold, right? Don't we think so? I mean, isn't that kind of what happens? The young is the one that wants to be the first to do everything. Man, he's the one that's going to jump. It's a reason why... 
in, you know, an elderly store. They don't sell skateboards. You know, my mother and father-in-law are here from the villages. They're going to be moving down here and joining us down here, but they live up in the villages. I've never seen in any of those old town squares a skateboard shop. You know why? Because older people don't like to skateboard because they know that will hurt me. Kids, on the other hand, are going, I'm all in, man. Give me a skateboard. The danger, more dangerous, the better. I'll do it. Do you think I can jump this cavern here on this skateboard? I would never think of it. But a kid, I could do it. You know? And so Jesus starts with the youngest to the oldest. And he's doodling something on the ground. And the Bible does say, from the youngest even to the oldest, they all departed. I think Jesus had to very quickly get to these young brash guys because they were willing to hey, listen I'm, I'm clean man I am to- I've never done this I'm totally clean I have no little dark you know closet in my life I'm going to pick up the stone I'm going to be the one because I want to be noticed man I want to be I want people to know that how religious I am and how awesome I am and here's the thing Jesus begins to draw on the ground could it be that he was drawing out this guy the youngest one who's ready to pick up the rock and hurl it at this woman poor woman's head who's been set up for, no doubt, been set up. And Jesus writes his name and writes the woman's name, maybe writes the date, maybe writes the location on the ground, and he looks and he goes, yeah, I'm out. Drops the rock and he's gone. All my religiosity out the window. I'm a sinner, I'm evil, I'm out. And it goes to the next and then the next. But I think by the time it gets to the older guy, the older guy's going, hey, you know what? I'm out of here. Don't even write my name down because I don't want anybody to see what I've done. But from the youngest to the oldest, they all dispart, disappeared. And when they were all gone. Jesus kind of looked around. He stood back up and he said, woman, where are those who accuse you? And she looked up and she says, They're not here. They're gone. Can you imagine being that woman? Can you imagine being that woman? You know you've been set up. You know that you're stuck. You can't get out. You're there. You're, you're cowering. You're in a fetal position next to a wall on a hot desert, you know, a hot dirt street with rocks all around. I've been to Israel a couple times. The one thing they do not lack is rocks. That's why they stoned everybody. And the thing is, here she is in the ground, humiliated because she has been exposed. Here she is exposed before the world to see. This woman was caught sleeping with a dude. We're going to stone her to death because it's our legal right to do it. And I'm gonna, we're going to do it right in front of the eyes of Jesus to discredit Jesus before the people. Jesus chases the accusers off. And he says, where are they that accuse you? And I wonder if that was the very first time she looked up. As she was cowering in that fetal position, knowing at any moment I'm going to feel the dead, blunt, hard, blunt blow to my head of these rocks. Have you ever been hit by a rock in the head? Any of you guys ever been hit in a rock by a head? In the head? (laughs) Okay. Can you do that again real quick? Okay, all right, all right. I was going to say all guys except for, yep, Nancy and Amy. All right, I can see you guys hitting the rock, hitting the head with a rock. 
I got hit in the head of the rock. I mean, I'm looking at Andy. Yep, of course. I knew you did. Who else was over here got hit in the rock? Uh, Kevin, I can see. Yeah, Tom, yep. I can see you guys getting hit in the head with rocks. You probably deserved it. But the girls, I don't know. I can see you probably started the fight, you know, <laughs> throwing the rocks in the first place, you know. <laughs> I got hit in the head with a rock from my brother, you know. I remember I, he was three years older than I was. He was a pitcher. I got in a rock fight with him. I'm like nine. I think I've got it. Here he is, 12 years old. He's a pitcher. He's one of the best guys in his league. And he's standing over there and he has this, just this, you know, supply of rocks. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. I jumped behind a little, you know, block wall at Hope and George Breyer's house, which was right behind our house. And I'm like poking my head up and poking my head down, poking my head up, poking my head down. Well, I. God, I zigged when I should have zagged one time, and I picked my head up and boom, right in between my eyes. <laughs> I, I, it sounded really loud. I'm sure it did. It, it, and this big old monkey bump. You ever hear of monkey bumps? Big old honking monkey bump right between my eyes. My brother's like, oh, oh, don't tell mom. I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right, that's going to work. You know? <laughs> he comes with this big old honking thing. Don, hey, it's good to see you, you know. Got a little acne problem. I don't know, you know, at, at nine, you know, big old honking bump in my head. I'm screaming, crying, you know. Rocks hurt, man. Here this woman is down, humiliated, humbled, and she's there, and she's about to receive her first head trauma this blunt, heavy stone hitting her head, hitting her body. She knows there's no way out. But Jesus chased those guys away. Woman, where are those who accuse you? And I wonder if it's at that time that she opened her eyes and she looked up for the very first time. Maybe took her a second wondering, is this a trick just to get my face to be exposed so you can hit my face? Is that how cruel you are? But she looked up and she didn't see the eyes of any of those men who brought her, set her up. She saw the eyes of Jesus and his eyes were not one of judgment. His eyes were not one of desiring, you know, retribution upon her. What she saw in Jesus' eyes, I believe, was love. And she looked up and she says, there, there are no one accusing me. And Jesus says, Woman, neither do I accuse you. Now that's where oftentimes the story ends. Because we like to think, well, Jesus is okay with people being caught in the act of adultery. See, Jesus is tolerant of those who are in adultery, who, who commit adultery, those who commit fornication, those who, you know, it, it, Jesus is okay with that. But Jesus did, wasn't okay with that. He says, Woman, neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more he expressed love but he, express, he, he, he also gave instruction of what was right and what was not what you were caught in was wrong that was called sin now I'm not accusing you what I'm saying is you need to go and you need to leave here and you need to not do that again you understand not berating her not beating her up, but definitely not tolerating it into who he was. Ah, oh, it's okay. I'm glad that I got you out of that. Go ahead and go back to that guy. 
No, Jesus wouldn't say that. That's wrong. Jesus wouldn't say that. But see, the church in Corinth was that, that church saying it's okay to do that kind of stuff. It's okay to, to sleep around. It's okay to do these different things. And Jesus wasn't down with that. Paul wasn't down with that. But here's the thing. Going back, I remember hearing these pastors talk about Corinth and I go, how could the church ever do a thing like that? And now I live in 2015 and that's a lot of churches that do that. That's a country that I live in right now. I just, it is every single day you turn on the news, you look at your, your phone and you look up the news and you go, man... It's not even a surprise when you see heinous things happening and, 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 and graphic, horrible things happening that wouldn't even have been spoken of many years, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but it's happening. And so when we look in the book of 1 Corinthians, we see that there is a message that Paul was saying to the church in Corinth, living in a very debaucherous climate of a country or of, of a city, and I and you and we to get together today can identify with that and say, okay, now, now Paul, this isn't just a message for then, this is also a message for today. And so as we move on and we look, we are going to focus on a couple of words today. And here's the thing, Paul, he said, and, and I talked about being called last week. Uh, but this week, I'm going to look at a little bit more. In, in chapter 1, I'm going to read um, the first nine verses. You can read with me. Um, it says, Paul called, and I don't like to say to be because to be is in italics. It shouldn't be there. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church. I'm writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Listen, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, guys, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul opens up with a very positive, very glorious, very encouraging note, salutation to the church, saying, I, Paul, am writing to you. I'm sending it by Sosthenes, our brother. And I am saying these things to you. I am blown away at God's grace in your life. And I thank God always for the grace that He has shown to you. Today we're going to be looking at verse 3. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Pastor Chuck Smith, who 
was ultimately my pastor out in California. I love the man. He passed away a few years ago, and I miss him so much. And he was just like a grandpa, you know. I never knew him on a personal level. I talked to him on quite a few occasions, but uh, he would never know who I am, even though we've talked quite a bit. But he was a guy that God had used in my life so dramatically and, and so importantly. He was like a spiritual dad. Like, not even my dad. Not, not really like my spiritual father. He was like a spiritual grandpa. You know? Passed away a couple of years ago, a couple of four years ago, I think. And, 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 but Pastor Chuck used to say, Grace and peace are the Siamese twins of Paul's letters. Every letter Paul writes, he uses these two words, grace and peace. And they're always in the same order. Pastor Chuck used to say, grace and peace. They're always in the same order because one cannot know the peace of God until one understands the grace of God. What does that all mean? Well, grace, as we see in the, in our... Uh, the title of our message today was Undeserved God's Gift of Grace. Grace literally means, it's a mouthful, I've learned it, I've memorized it, it speaks directly to me when I, when I re-say this definition of grace and it speaks volumes to me, I hope it does to you. It's not words that I would normally use, but, but I love the verbiage. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards the infinitely ill-deserved. Those are not words that I use, but man, do they have an impact. God's unmerited favor, undeserved. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. God's unmerited there is no merit in me that deserves God's anything from God other than punishment and consequence. God's unmerited. I didn't do anything for God, to God, that would make him love me, that would make him have to give me grace, that would have to make, or make him show me mercy that would make him uh, turn away any consequence that would come upon my soul or your soul eternally. There's nothing that I could do. There's nothing that you could do. There's nothing that we could do. It's unmerited. It's God's unmerited favor. And I love the description, towards the infinitely ill-deserved. I am so ill-deserving of God's favor. Well, if I did a little bit more, would, he, would I now deserve it? No, it's infinite. Infinite. You're infinite. I am infinite, ill-deserved. Ill-deserving of God's favor. I am infinitely ill-deserving of God's favor. Now, I know that that can bother some of us because we're going, wait a minute, I thought God was a God of love. He is. You're saying that there's nothing that I can do to make God love me. No, there's nothing you can do to make God love you. God loves you in spite of you. But I, I, I kind of look okay and I'm, 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 I'm a nice person and I'm a good person and I help people. Those are all neat things if one of us were your judge. If, if somebody in our country that looked upon that kind of goodness in your life 
and that was the criteria by which you would go to heaven and, and they were the ones that judging you, then you could have maybe a leg to stand on. I am better than that person, that person, that person, that person. You can name out a millions of people that you're better than and more deserving than. This definition for grace, God's unmerited favor towards the infinitely ill-deserved, is this. It's, it puts everybody on the same plane. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how bad you are. I don't care how lovely you are. I don't care how unlovely you are. I don't care how loving. I don't care how unloving. I don't care how, you know, whatever, you know, you want to place in front of your name that you are, good or bad, it doesn't give you a different standing before God. There's nothing that you can do to warrant God's favor towards you. Just can't do it. The idea is to drive home this nail in this, in this statement, and that is this. We are hopeless. We're hopeless. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to be granted heaven, to be given to heaven, to be given a, a key or to be given a pass to go to heaven. There's nothing that we can do. And back in a day when that meant a lot, when people looked at the rules and the regulations that they had to keep in order to try to appease God by fulfilling the law, they saw that they couldn't. Man could not fulfill the law. Not one man fulfilled the law. God laid out a law. Man couldn't do it. Even the most righteous high priest couldn't fulfill it. Couldn't do it. What about David? King David, didn't he? Nope, sinner. What about Abraham? Nope, he's a sinner. What about Moses? Mm-mm, sinner. <coughs> well, if they can't make it, well then how can I possibly? Exactly. Exactly. No one can make it to heaven based upon their own goodness, based upon their own deeds, based upon their own you know, actions upon the face of the earth. Hence, back in a day, and hopefully that day is today in your own life, when you look at yourself and you go, wow, I'm looking at myself right now, I'm considering myself right now. If I can never be good enough to go to heaven, then what's the use? Is there a way? Is there possibly a way? Is there possibly a way for me to go to heaven? Is there possibly a way for me to escape the torments of hell? I was just talking to uh, Bert just a few minutes ago. He was talking about a friend of his that doesn't believe in hell. He doesn't want to believe in hell. He doesn't want to believe in a God. Uh, Not Bert, but a friend. (laughs) Bert believes. (laughs) Bert's like I am, man. Both have led some pretty ugly lives. And by God's grace, He saved us. And we're alive today because of Christ. So He understands it. But His friend didn't. And it's the God that we like to make up in our mind. It, it, we, we kind of... We kind of... Uh, 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 marry together fairy tales and God to help us to cope. 
Because it's a hard thing to consider that somebody who didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, when they closed their eyes for the last time on earth, they opened their eyes immediately in a place of judgment. And it's not a judgment that just, okay, you're judged and now you're done. You're annihilated. There are those that believe in annihilation. Well, you just cease to exist. You just stop. You just cease to exist. There is no spirit nor soul that goes on. That's not the truth. The Bible doesn't teach that. Fairy tales will teach that because we don't want to think of the consequence. We don't want to think that there's, there's ill that is in front of any human being once they die. One of the first funerals I ever did that was not for my family was over in Fort Lauderdale. I, I had to do a funeral for a person. I've used this story before, but... Um, I remember that funeral, it has been branded into my mind, and it's this. The memorials, there was a woman that contacted the church when I was over in Calvary Fort Lauderdale and said, hey, do you have a pastor that can come and officiate the, the memorial service for my, for my mom? Um, there's going to be a lot of people there, but uh, uh, none of us go to church. I'm the one that has only, I've gone to your church a couple of times, and so they've said, hey, why don't you find somebody at that church that you went to before? So that's why I'm calling. And so they said, okay, hey, Don, here you go. Somebody needs you to go and do a, a memorial service. Yeah, okay, all right. Do we know anything about these people? No, she's only come a couple times. And nobody has a church that they go to and they just needed a pastor to do it. Are you up for it? Sure, I'll do it. Yeah, it's packed out packed out uh, at, at the funeral home, standing room only in this place, people weeping and crying by the looks of them, by the sound of them, by the words that were coming out of their mouth, by the smell in that room of incredible, deep smell of alcohol. Um, and just the way that they were talking, looking at the woman who had an open casket, looking at her and going, wow, this is a very, very, very hard life that she lived and that they are living right now. I said, you know, I, I, and oftentimes I do in a memorial services, I, I didn't know this person, but you all did help me to know this person. Get up and share with the family something that this person has done in your life that has made an indelible impression upon you, something that we'd like to know about her, you know, so that we can, we can share with you and we can, we, can, we can know and we can celebrate her life right now. And, and almost bar none, every one of them were pretty ugly remembrances of what she did and how she did it and why she did what she did. And, but they all cracked up and laughed because of some of the ugly stuff that she, I mean, it's just utter sin. But everybody thought, oh, that's great, that's great. And here I am. I, I'm in a room and I, I started crying. I started crying as I continued on. I didn't know how to contain myself. I didn't know how to, 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 to control that because I'm sitting here going, this woman, they're crying for this woman who, unless God has done something miraculous in her life and she saw Jesus before she passed away, but it doesn't sound like that's what happened to her she passed away fairly suddenly. And, and, and here she is. I'm looking at her going, 
she's lost. She's lost for eternity. And they're out here celebrating her life and they're getting drunk and they're, they're talking about all the, the drunken times that they had and some of the, 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 the words that were coming out of their mouths, the F-bombs that were being, oh yeah, blankety blank, blank, blank. She did this and blanket, oh, she blanked that, you know. And all these different things, you're going, oh man, ah! Those words shouldn't even be spoken in this place. But you know what? They're celebrating her life. And I'm going, man, here this woman is probably in hell. And these people are going. And, and I, I was reminded of my spiritual father who told me, when you get into a memorial service, you never speak to the dead person. Their time's over. What you do is you speak to the living. And the point that I, that I make in that is the point that he was making with me is he's saying, Don, here's the thing. You speak on their behalf. You know that when her eyes closed and she woke up and God was not her Lord, but God was her judge. When she opened her eyes in eternity and God was not her Savior. But God said, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, according to the word of God, that there is a time in scripture that it talks about a rich man and Lazarus. Some of you guys know that, that story, right? They both die. They both descend into Hades. And sometimes we think Hades is hot, you know? Well, part of it is. I'm of the opinion that according to what scripture says, there was a part of Hades, there was a half and half a part of it was a place of torment. There was another part that was called paradise. There was another part of that, that half part, that was called Abraham's bosom. It was where Jesus said to the man on the cross, today you, know, today you will be with me in paradise. To the thief on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And he says, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Where did Jesus go? Did he go down and be punished in hell? No. There are some people that go, yeah, Jesus had to go down and be punished in hell. Can I just rest assure every one of our hearts in that kind of a mindset? Listen, there's nothing that hell could ever do to Jesus that would be worse than what Jesus endured on the cross when his father turned his back on him. When Jesus cried out from the cross, he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, now think for just a moment. I have a son and I love him so much. I love him more than my own life. And here's the thing. At what point would I see my son in a place of suffering and my son being innocently brutalized in front of me and me turn my back on my son? Turn my back on my son. It's the first time in the history of mankind that God ever turned his back on anybody and it was Jesus. So those that say, well, Jesus went into hell because he had to be punished in hell. There's nothing that hell could have ever done that was more hurtful and painful and, and, and dark than to have your father turn his back on you in your most trying time. And yet, that was the reason Jesus went to the cross. 
He knew that he had to go to the cross. It's the reason he sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane as though it were great drops of blood coming from his, his, his pores of his skin saying, Father, if there be any other way for this cup you know, to pass from me, let it be, but nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I came here for a purpose. I came here to save mankind. I came here to give this impassable, impossible path to heaven. Currently, I'm, I'm here to provide a way. I'm here to provide a way. What previously was impassable, what previously was impossible to get into heaven for mankind because mankind could never be good enough, I am coming as God in human flesh to live on their behalf, to live with no sin, to die in their place because you and I can't die for our sin. We're spotted, man. We're not holy. We're not righteous. There were those, you know, in that day that priests, they would, when a sacrifice would come in, uh, they would look for any spot or blemish upon the sacrifice. And if there was any spot or blemish upon the sacrifice, the priest would, would rule that is disqualified. This animal cannot be offered because there is a blemish on this animal. I had that issue on Thanksgiving. My wife made me take all the little little spots out of the potatoes because she didn't want to have spots or blemishes in the mashed potatoes. I didn't understand it, but it was good for her. Going, man, you're like the, 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 the priest that rejected potato. You're going to reject my potato from a sacrifice because it has little spots and wrinkles on it, you know. But I did it. I cleaned it very reluctantly, and I fought the whole way, but I got them clean. They looked like the moon when I was done. All these old pock marks all over, but there was no spots. <laughs> And they were the whitest potatoes you have ever seen. But here's the thing. Jesus was spotless when he went to the cross. You and I were spotted, man. There's no digging deep enough to get the spots out of us. We're unholy. We are, we, we are unworthy to go to the cross on our behalf. And so God loved you he loved me and he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us that's what he did because you and I are so unworthy and so as he hung there on the cross he said to that thief he goes today you'll be with me in paradise and later on that day when God turned his back on his son because God could not bear to absorb the sin. God, God is not going, there's no sin in heaven. It was the plan all along. It's the reason that Jesus was sweating blood, was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that his time was up. He knew that in the, for, for the first time in the history of mankind, God would turn his back on mankind. He would turn his back on a man. He would turn his back on his own son because that was the only way that you and I could be saved. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.8, we know that verse, right? God demonstrated, you can say it with me, God demonstrated his own love towards me, us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's right. 
while we were still in our sins, God, motivated by nothing else that we could ever do, motivated simply by his love for you and me, he sent his son to die on a cross because he saw it was impassable, it was impossible for you and I to go to heaven apart from what he could do for us. It was impossible otherwise. We were, it was a futile effort on our part to live good enough to go to heaven. And so, when he went to the cross and he died, and he was buried, I believe he went into the paradise. I believe that when he went into paradise, he went into Abraham's bosom. There in that compartment in Hades, which I believe was in the center of the earth, call me silly. I'm just saying that's what the Bible says. Jesus says, hey, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. I just am a literalist. I look at Jesus say he's, he's going to go to the center of the earth. We have this idea, scientists say that we have this molten ball of iron that's in the middle of our earth. I think that that's just maybe the outer shell that we just can't see in. There's Hades in there. <laughs> we don't know what's in there. We've never even penetrated the earth's crust. But we understand what's on the inside of the earth. We don't know what's on the inside of the earth. The Bible says in the middle of the earth, there's a place called Hades. There was a place called paradise. There was a place called a place of torment. And that's where the rich man went. There was no hope for the rich man ever. When he went to hell, there was no hope. He saw that there was no escape from this place of torments. In fact, he looked over and he said to Father Abraham, Abraham, please, send Lazarus over. I know I treated him bad when he was alive and I was alive and I had all these things when I was alive. He had nothing. And, and you know, but right now, my soul is in torments right now. Can you at least send Lazarus over to dip his finger into the water and come over and touch my tongue? For my soul is in torments over here. Father Abraham, please. And Abraham says, no, we, we can't do that. We can't do that because, you see, there's this big chasm between you and us. Even if we wanted to come to you, we couldn't. If you want to come to us, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's impassable. Can't happen. What did the rich man then say? He says, then if you're not going to do that for me, then please send somebody back from the dead to tell them what, they're, what I am seeing right now and what I'm experiencing right now because I have brothers and I want to warn him. And I want to tell him, you don't want to come to the place that I've come. I, you do not want to be here. You don't want to be here. And Abraham says, listen, they've got the prophets. They've got all those that have got us sent to them. If they won't listen to those guys, neither will they listen, though someone were to rise from the dead. What a prophetic word. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. In fact, Lazarus actually rose from the dead in the very next chapter wasn't the same Lazarus there was an illustration but here Lazarus ends up rising from the dead guess what did everybody believe Lazarus he died there was a guy actually he was a friend of Jesus he was a brother of Mary and Martha Lazarus he died Mary and Martha sent to get Jesus he was in Bethany with his boys last time he was around Jerusalem they wanted to kill Jesus and he sent they sent somebody over to Jesus to get Jesus and Jesus they went to Jesus and says hey the friend that you have Lazarus he's dead or he's, he's not dead he's sick and he's about to die can you come and Jesus goes yeah, uh, yeah we'll be there we'll be there but then he hung out in Bethany for a couple more days then he took off and he went back and as he's before he goes back the disciples go Thomas says you know uh, Lord you know the last time we 
we were there, they wanted to kill us all. What do you think? Kind of a hotbed right now? You sure you want to go back? Listen, if Lazarus is sick, Jesus, he'll get better. We don't have to go. We don't have to go visit him. He doesn't need to, to, to doesn't need us there to get better. Jesus said, Boys, listen, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. Now, how did Jesus know that Lazarus was dead yet? Again, Jesus is God. He knows these things. Thomas kind of throws his hands up. He goes, okay, let's go back then. Let's go back. We'll die with Jesus. That's exactly what he says. All right, we'll go back. We'll die with you. I think that that's how he said, all right, we'll go back and we'll die with you. <laughs> Following Jesus, you're going to go die. Hey, here's the thing. Jesus goes back. And as he's walking towards the city, Martha runs out. She's crying. Jesus, if you were only here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, if you were only here, my brother wouldn't have died. Do you believe, Martha, that your brother will rise again? Do you believe that he'll live again? Yes, I believe in the resurrection, but Lord, if you would have just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. My brother wouldn't have died. My brother wouldn't have died. And he goes, you know, go, go get Mary. Mary comes out. Jesus gets closer to the city, and they have these mourners that are out there. Everybody's mourning Lazarus. Oh, Lazarus, he's dead. Jesus stops out by the tomb, and Jesus, he says, Lazarus, Jesus actually, before he did that shortest verse in the Bible, says Jesus wept. I think it's John eleven twenty six. Jesus wept. You know why Jesus wept? I think Jesus wept because his, his thought went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Death would never have occurred if the Garden of Eden wouldn't have happened. If we wouldn't have sinned in the Garden of Eden, through Adam and Eve, death wouldn't have entered into the world. But because we chose to do something on our own, branch out, spread our wings away from God, what we did is that we got ourselves in trouble. And because we got ourselves in trouble, Jesus looks at it and he goes, it's just so, so senseless. If you would have just done what I asked you to do, you, you would have life. The thorns, they never would have grown. The sweat on your brow, Never kind of ticks you off when now living in Florida you know all the sweat that we have and that's that's part of the curse man ladies childbirth need I say more don't you wait childbirth wasn't even going to be painful could you imagine Flip, there he is you know <laughs> oh that was a pleasant experience and it's not a pleasant experience right now you know through pain you're going to deliver your kids it's a curse. It's part of the curse. Here's the thing. I believe Jesus' mind went all the way back to the Garden of Eden going, man, oh, the pain that comes upon us because we simply sin. Sin has entered into the world and this is a, this is a result of sin. It's death. Somebody go up there and pull the stone away from Lazarus's tomb door. Martha goes, the infamous words of Martha, she says, oh, but Jesus, he's been dead for four days. His body stinketh. Jesus says, open the, open the tomb. The mourners, they turn away from mourning and started laughing at Jesus. 
You ever been laughed at for your faith? But Jesus goes, Lazarus, come forth. And he had to say, Lazarus, I have to say this every time. He had to say, Lazarus, because if he wouldn't, then everybody would have come out of their tombs and that wouldn't have kind of defeated the purpose. Okay? Hey, come forth! All these people, hey, yeah, what? You know? But Lazarus, come forth! You know? He was all bound in bandages. Mmm! Mmm! Hey, take the stuff off him and let him go. Loose him! Let him go! Thank you. Thank you. That was a wild trip. I, I was dead. You know that? Lazarus rose again from the dead. What did the, what did the religious people wanted to do? It immediately say, immediately said, they immediately sought to kill Lazarus. So the man that's in, the rich man that's in Hades, in the place of torment, says, please send somebody back from the dead and warn my brothers not to come to this place that I am. And Abraham says, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they're not going to believe him. If they're not going to believe what God says now, they're not going to believe though somebody rise from the dead. Lazarus, right away, he rises from the dead. What do these people do? Let's kill him. Let's kill the evidence. I don't understand. But that's us. Here's the thing. God saw the impact of sin. The impact of sin is death. I gotta finish with this. Listen. The impact is this. You and I are going to hell apart from Christ. God saw impassable, impossible for you and I. He said, there's only one way, only one way for man to be saved, for a person to be saved. And it's going to be through me becoming a man and living among them and dying in their place. And so therefore, as Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's simple. That's it. It's through me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You can't get to heaven apart from me. But I don't believe that there's a hell. That's not what the Bible says. You can't mix fairy tale in with your own, with the, with the Bible. You can't do it. You can't mix your own feelings in with the Bible. You can't do it. This is God's rule book. You can't come up with other rules. You can't come up with other dictates. You can't come up with different parameters of salvation. The parameters of salvation are this. You're hopelessly lost. You cannot save yourself. The only way for you to go to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That's why God made a way for you and I. And it's not because you're good enough, not because you're great enough, not because you've done a lot of great things, not because of how many old ladies you helped cross the street, doesn't matter how many little kids you bought lollipops, doesn't matter how much money you've bought for a church, you know, paid to a church to put a stained glass window in, it doesn't matter of anything that you've done here on the earth. There's nothing that you can do to warrant God's favor. You are infinitely, I am infinitely, we are infinitely ill-deserved of God's favor. But here's the thing. God loved you and he loved me so much. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way. But God, (laughs) God laid on him, his son, the iniquities of us all. Laid on Jesus your sin, my sin, our sin, upon Jesus that upon believing in him, 
First John chapter 5, verse 11 through 15, or 11 through 13, talk about this. The testimony of this, that God has given us His Son, and in His Son we have life. He who believes in the, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son of God does not have life. These things were written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. There's no other way to heaven. It is not by us being good, it's by us simply responding to the gift that God gave to us. And we didn't deserve it. And when we accept that gift, gang, listen, listen, please, just hang with me for a second. If we don't accept that gift, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We, we can't come up with a mind of saying, well, I'm going to come up with my own way of what's going to happen to me if I don't do this. I don't want to take that gift. I just don't like the color of red bows. I'm not going to do it. I don't want that gift. Well, it doesn't mean, that doesn't negate the fact that God gave you a gift. Whether you open it or not, it's really up to you. The point is, God's saying, I've offered you a free gift of grace. Mercy, he doesn't say I'm giving you a free gift of mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve hell. I deserve hell, eternal. Grace is getting, not just not getting what you deserve, but getting what you don't deserve. And that's eternal life. So God, His grace is this. You deserve hell. You deserve death. My gift to you is my son who died in your place. You can't make it to heaven on your own goodness, but he was good for you. His righteousness can be put upon you. You, you can give him your life. You can, you can give him your life. You can take, he will take your sin upon his shoulders. He will pay for the iniquity of your sin. He'll pay the punishment that was upon you. And you will be righteous because he did that for you, because I did that for you, because I demonstrated my own love for you and that while you were still in your sin, I sent my son. The most horrific, horrible thing that has ever had to happen where I had to turn my back on my son, I did it for you and it's a gift. You can turn your back on the death of my son but now you have no one to blame but yourself. The gift is is that I've done this for you and you simply just have to open the box. You just have to open, open the gift. You have to respond to my, my, my gift to you. You can't make it to heaven. It's impossible, it's impassable. The only way, it's through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is grace. You didn't do anything to deserve it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. God motivated only out of his own love for you. He provided a way. Now the ball's in your court. You're either going to take that gift and you're going to open it or you're going to push the gift aside and say, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it a different way. And in that way, you're going to be like the rich man. And you're going to regret your decision for all eternity. As that woman there in that memorial service, I'm sitting there going, I can't, I can't, I can't fathom. These people are just being led down this road. She's gone. She's lost. I can't save her. But man, what I can do. And I shared with them. I said, listen. If the matriarch that is laying in this casket right now were standing in my shoes, 
she would be more passionate and more more uh, deliberate than I am right now. And I'm going to tell you right now, here's what she would say. Heaven is real and Jesus is real and you need to get saved. You need to understand what the cross was all about. You've got to understand that God loves you and he wants to save your soul. And you've got to respond to it. And I laid out the gospel. Now I'm sure they're sitting there going, you just don't know grandma, mom, sister, friend. But I know her because I know the rich man. And I know the rich man would want to be standing in this pulpit and going, please send somebody back to warn the people. They don't want to come where I am. My life's over, but man, I can at least send somebody back for them. There are those of you that you might go, man, you know what? I have a loved one that's lost. And I want to spend eternity with them. And I know that they're, they're not in heaven. And it breaks my heart that they're not in heaven. And you know what? I, my heart agrees for you, man. I have family that has done that too, that has been lost. And you go, well, well, how do I reconcile that? Don't I want to be where they are? No, you don't. Honor their death. Honor their, their wishes for you that you would open your eyes and see the gift that God is offering to you. They blew it. They didn't. Do you think that they really want you with them? The rich man didn't. He didn't want his brothers where he was. And so by God's grace, he wants to save you. Not because of anything that you did. And when you open that present, God's gift of grace, undeserved God's gift of grace, you open that, guess what you find in there? You find peace. That's why Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Because you can never know You can never have peace with God unless you first understand the grace of God. And the grace of God is that God loves you and loves me so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for you and I. I don't know that I can spell salvation out. The plan of the gospel, the good news of of God, the plan of salvation, the way to get to heaven, I don't know that I I can spell it out any more clear than that. God passionately loves you but I'm a sinner I know so am I so is everyone in this room but he loves you so much that he wants you to respond to the gift he's offering you that gift even today if you've never taken that gift you need to take it today do you mean that he'll he'll stop offering it no I'm not saying that he'll ever stop offering it what I'll say is that your heart will become so callous that you will stop wanting to receive it so here's the thing if today you've heard God's heart you've heard God and you said man I want, what, I want that gift that God has given me we're not guaranteed our next moment I just, a friend of mine back in high school you saw on Facebook uh, two days yesterday two days ago Friday his uh, shows a picture of his mom and you can just hear the grief in his writing on Facebook this is a dear picture of my mother at Thanksgiving table with us, enjoying us as a family. My mom unexpectedly and tragically died this morning. And I'm broken and I've lost without my mom and, I, and, and just the grief that was in this man's voice in his writing. We're not guaranteed the next day. I'm not trying to scare anybody into heaven, but I want you to be very cognizant of the fact that, you know what, you have one life to live. 
when that's over, the choice that you made in that life, whether you accepted the gift or whether you rejected the gift, you're either going to be a, a saint or you're going to be an eight. What do you want to be? A saint or an eight? A saint is one who's accepted the salvation of Jesus. The, the ain't isn't. They didn't. Father, thank you so much for today. And I know I've taken a little bit of time, but God, this is so important. I know that even as we are approaching the Christmas season, and, and Lord, we've just exited, uh, and we're still uh, basking in the, the afterglow of thanksgiving. Lord, just the time that we've had, um, all of us in different ways. But hopefully all of us, at one time or another, at least on that day, sitting there and considering the things that we're thankful for. Right now, Lord, I, as a pastor of this church, that the shepherd of this flock that is yours, I'm simply to be doing what it is that you want. These are your sheep. These are not mine. On behalf of us in this congregation, Lord, we're so grateful that you saw the futility of our efforts to ever get to heaven. And you loved us so much that you would send your, you would devise a plan that would cause the death of your son, the resurrection of your son, in order for me and us in this room to be saved simply because we've opened the free gift that you've offered to us, not because of anything we've done, but because of you, because of your love. And if we've responded to that gift, Lord, we thank you, God, so much that our salvation is not dependent upon, dependent upon how good I am from this day forward. My salvation is dependent upon your sacrifice on the cross, the blood that you shed for us. I'm going to sin and I'm going to fall, but Lord, that's not going to be the character of my life. I want to follow you all the rest of my days. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room right now that they've heard the gospel here maybe more clearly than they've ever heard it before. They've heard the way of, of, of salvation. They've heard and understood today how to get to heaven for the very first time or more clear than they've ever heard it. Lord, I pray that right now they, they respond to that gift. Right now, they get this image of you reaching out your arms with a gift to them. Right now, there might be one person in this room. There might be a couple of people in this room. I don't know. You might have been going here for a long time and you've never done this. Right now, Get this picture in your mind. God is handing you a gift right now. It's called eternal life. Never die. Enjoy eternity in heaven where your mind will be blown on a day-by-day basis because of the goodness of God. Holiness. Right. If you're here and, and you don't have that, you, you're not sure you're going to go to heaven. Well, right now, God's handing you that gift. You just need to reach out and take it. And how you reach out and take it is you simply respond to the gift that he's offered. And you, How you respond is you say, Lord, I, I acknowledge that you've offered me a gift here today. I acknowledge that you've offered me the gift of Jesus Christ dying in my place, on my behalf, so that he would pay for my sin. He would pay the penalty for my sin. He didn't pay for his own sin. He had no sin. It's the reason he was the only one able to go to the cross. 
But he did that for me. And today, I'm going to place my trust in him. I'm going to place my trust in that death and that resurrection. I'm going to place my trust in you, God, because you loved me in spite of me in spite of my weaknesses and my sin and my failures and all that I've ever been in my life, you still love me and you still want me. You still want to provide a way for me to go to heaven. And today I received that gift and I want to, I want to go to heaven. Well, maybe not today, but Lord, whenever you choose to call me home, I don't know what day my day is up. I just want to be with you one day. Forgive me of my sin, Lord. Come into my heart as my Lord and my Savior. I believe you died on a cross for me. You took my place. You did what I could never do for myself. You did it for me. You made what was impassable, passable. You made what was impossible, possible. And you have bridged a gap between me and heaven, me and your Father, me and God. And I choose to take that path today. Come into my heart as my Lord and my Savior. May my God be my King, be my Lord, be my friend from this day forward. I accept your free gift today. I might not know how to handle tomorrow, but right now I'm accepting you right now, what you have given to me. Now God, I pray that you show me the way. Show me how to walk from this day forward. Help me to live my life for you. And I don't even know what that means, but God, help me to live my life for you from this day forward. Thank you, God, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. Thank you, Lord, for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.